Remember the promise Jesus made in Revelation 3.10? Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's never, ever, ever been an hour of trial that's come upon the whole planet. It's coming. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Today's sermon is entitled, When Heaven Comes to Earth, Part 1. We are going to look at the millennial reign of Christ from a time perspective. And the first point that Dr. Brogy will be highlighting is that the millennial kingdom commences with Satan's doom. Revelation 20 verse 1 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Please join us in Revelation chapter 20 verse 1 now as we begin. Take God's word with you this morning. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 20. This is a two-part sermon, When Heaven Comes to Earth, as you can see there on your bulletin. And I want you to imagine for just a moment a world in which there's no devil, because there's coming a day when the devil will be locked up in the abyss for a thousand years. I want you to stop and imagine a world that's filled with the redeemed saints of God from Pentecost all the way to the rapture, meeting one another. I want you to imagine meeting the brave tribulation saints who were beheaded for their faith because they were unwilling to take the mark of the beast. I want you to imagine a world when you might walk and meet people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Adam and believers during the Old Testament realm. A world where God's people will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the day that we are going to begin examining this morning. It will last for a thousand years when heaven comes to earth. Now, if you've been with us, we've been studying a series of judgments that happen at the second coming of Christ. That there's not one singular judgment as some have portrayed and as most unbelievers think, but there's actually a series of judgments that happen at the second coming and then a final, final judgment at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. And so if this is your first time I've been doing a series, this is actually the 25th message on God's prophetic schedule. And we will, God willing, when we're finished with this series, take another book of the Bible and go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. The series started with the rapture of the church, that the next great event on God's prophetic schedule is the catching up of the church. And John writes of this in Revelation 4 and verse 1. Listen to these words. After these things, after what things? After chapters 1, 2, and 3 that are filled with images of Christ and his church, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. One of these days, it could be today, God will catch up his people and we'll be gathered to the place where Jesus is. And so the church is conspicuously absent in Revelation 4 through 18. They're not mentioned at all. You won't see the church again until Revelation chapter 19. We'll be caught up. A door in heaven is open. We enter in. And the word caught up, harpazo, from the Latin translation of the Bible that was used for a thousand years is the Latin word rapturo. 
And so we speak of the word rapture. People say the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's not in the English Bible, but it's in the Latin Bible. And it's simply translating the catching up, the snatching away of God's people. Now, we've studied how Christ comes back the first time um, in the early stages to catch us up and we meet him in the air. But then a period of time begins to unfold that is unparalleled in human history. We've seen a, a tragic earthquake this week. Over 30,000 people now dead, and they say there could be many thousands more. Just seems to grow by the hour. That's just a glimpse of what is in front of the earth. Because there's coming a time when Jesus said, For then there will be a time of great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And that tribulation is unfolded, not just in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, but in Revelation chapters 4 through 18. And when Jesus said that, he was not exaggerating. He's God incarnate. He never exaggerated. He could never bend the truth or overstate the truth because he is the truth. And if you think of all the atrocities that have happened since the beginning of time, all the earthquakes, all the tornadoes, all the holocausts, all the wars, all of the innocents who've been slaughtered, you could put it all together and it doesn't even begin to compare to what is in front of man in this seven-year period known as the tribulation. Here's a visual picture of where we've been in this series. We've seen that the next great event is the rapture of the church and after we're caught up, there's a space of time. We don't know how long, whether it's weeks, days, or months, but it appears to be very short and there will be a man who will step on the scene. He's given over 30 titles in Scripture. His most prolific title is that of the Antichrist. He will make a covenant with the people of Israel, and the 70th week of a prophecy found in Daniel 9 will begin. Daniel tells a prophecy of weeks of years. He speaks of 69 weeks of years, or 483 years, that concern Israel. And then this space of time, because he came to his own, his own received him not. And then the 70th week will kick in when this covenant is signed, and it's seven years long. At the end of the seven years, there's a space of time, and we'll see it this morning, where then Jesus comes in the second coming, and he will then rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, these events have never happened. There's never been a one-world leader a one-world government, but the Bible speaks of these very things. And this move towards globalism, we just see it building every year that goes by. And this one-world ruler in the middle of this seven-year period will commit the abomination of desolation, and so we will go from the sealed judgments found in the first three and a half years to great tribulation with the, bowl, with the trumpet in bold judgments. And of course, Jesus points out that those who are alive to witness these events, they should pay attention to a parable he told. Let me read that parable from Matthew 24 and verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know that summer is near. The word parabole speaks of a truth that you cast alongside something in order to build a spiritual truth. You use something that has happened or could happen to drive home a truth that will happen, something unknown so that we can understand something, uh, something known so we can understand something that is unknown. And so, of course, a Jew is very familiar with a fig tree 
and its seasonal fruit and how it blossomed. And in the spring of the year, it would put forth those little tender leaves. And when they saw those little tender leaves, they knew, oh, summer is coming. It's fast approaching. And Jesus' point is, when the generation of people witness the events in Matthew 24, including the abomination of desolation, where they witness a time like the world has never seen in all of human history, they too should know that the return of the Messiah is near. Now, sadly, some have equated the fig tree to be the people of Israel. And so they've reasoned like this. When Israel becomes a nation, the generation that is alive when Israel becomes a nation will see the second coming of Christ. The person who really postulated that was a guy by the name of Hal Lindsey. And so he wrote a book in the 1970s called The Late Great Planet Earth. He said Israel became a nation, May 1948. A generation is 40 years long. So the second coming has to happen by 1988. Back it up seven years. The rapture has to happen by 1981. Those dates, of course, came and gone. And then he came back, sold the body of Christ more books. And he said a generation could be 70 or 80 years. So now that brings us to, in the 80-year realm, 2028, back up seven years, 2021, the rapture must take place. It's sheer nonsense. But if you want to sell books, you sensationalize things. But you have to let the scripture speak for itself. Now, there's no question Because Moses states it, Jeremiah affirms it, Ezekiel repeats it, and Jesus predicts it, and the Revelation describes it, that at the very end of time, God will gather the Jewish people back into the land. We have witnessed biblical prophecy in our lifetime being fulfilled. Because Israel has to be back in the land for the final prophetic schedule to unfold. So Israel is a super sign, a super prophecy, and the unfolding of what God plans to do in the future. But Israel is not the fig tree. Now, certainly in Jeremiah chapter 24, God compares those who are away in the Babylonian captivity, the good captives to good figs, and the bad captives to rotten figs. He does the same in Jeremiah 29. And in Luke 13, Jesus compares the unbelief of Israel to a barren fig tree. But if there's a symbol, I suppose, that God uses to encapsulize Israel, it's a grapevine. And so on many of their coins, found at different periods, all the way from Solomon through the first temple period and following, you would find grapevines on their coins because that was a picture of God's blessing on the nation. He's making a simple point here. When you see the fig tree put out its little sprouts, You know, summer is near. Even so, the generation that is alive, that witnessed the things that are described in chapter 24, they know that Christ's coming is near. In New England, where I grew up, one of the first trees to put out its little leaves was the willow. And you're always kind of blessed when the willow tree put out its leaves because you knew winter's just about over, spring is coming, and the warm weather of summer. But the fact that it does not represent Israel is crystal clear from the parallel passage. In Luke's gospel, he writes this in Luke 21, 29. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees. So if Israel were the fig tree, Jesus couldn't say all the trees. He's just saying, here's a general principle. 
When the sprouts come out, you know summer is near. And the generation who witnesses these things, they should know he is near. And so Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 33, you can bank on this. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Please note, he does not say recognize that he is here, but recognize that he is near. Look up, your redemption draws nigh. If he was here, then you could calculate the day. Understand the rapture is not found in Matthew 24. We know exactly how long the seven-year tribulation period is. It's affirmed by Daniel and Revelation. It's given in months and days. So you could calculate, oh, here's the signing of the peace treaty. Here's the second coming. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. And he's not speaking in reference to the rapture because the rapture isn't found in Matthew 24. He is speaking in reference to the second coming. But when you see these events, that generation, you know that he is near. And there's a short, apparently, space of time, even affirmed by the end of the prophet Daniel. And then Jesus will literally physically come to the earth. And so remember, just as the first coming program included a number of events, his birth, his life, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, even so the second coming program includes a number of events. And included in those events are the catching up of the church, the great tribulation, his second coming to the earth. Here's a chart that God gave me a few years ago that I tried to sort out in my mind the distinctions between these two events. At the rapture, of course, Christ comes in the air. At the second coming, Christ comes to the earth. So right off, he meets his people in different places. We shall meet the Lord in the air, Paul will say. But the prophet Zechariah, speaking of the second coming, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Why is the Mount of Olives covered with graves? Why is it the largest graveyard in the world? Because the Jewish people believe what the scripture says, Messiah is coming back to the Mount of Olives. He's going to go to the Temple Mount. And they bury themselves in such a way that when they stand up, they're looking right at the Temple Mount because that's where the Messiah is going to be. He's going to literally split the mountain in two. Ezekiel says a river will flow from the Temple Mount, among other places, all the way to the Dead Sea, and then we'll be able to fish in that. Have men been able to fish in the Dead Sea? Not on your life if you've been there. It's the deadest sea in all the world. But it's going to happen because God said it would happen. This chart also indicates the difference between these two events and that at the rapture, Christ comes for his people, where at the second coming, the angels come for the lost. Again, the Lord himself, Paul will say, will descend from heaven. But listen to what the angels of God will do towards the lost. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all who commit lawlessness. Why? Because no unbelievers are going to enter the kingdom of God. There's also a difference between these two events in that uh, at the rapture, his people are removed from the earth to heaven, whereas at the second coming, the lost are removed from the earth to Hades. Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. He's going to take us to heaven at the rapture. 
the second coming, he's going to remove by his angels all the unbelievers, and they're going to go to Hades. Listen to these words again from Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them where? Into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so when an unbeliever dies today, he goes to Hades. And we'll be studying Hades and this schedule as it unfolds, this prophetic schedule. They're not in hell. No one is in hell yet. They're in Hades. And there's a distinction between the two. Hades is a place of torment. And someday, as Revelation 20, 11 to 15 indicates, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, the final, final resting place of all the lost. This same truth, by the way, Jesus brings out in the Olivet Discourse. Notice Matthew 24, 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And then he begins to unfold those days. And among the parallels, listen to what he says in verse 40. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Al Lindsay saw something no one else saw in 2,000 years. And he said in the 1970s, this is the rapture. The rapture is not found in Matthew 24. In classes on hermeneutics, we would use Hal Lindsey as an example of how not to interpret the Scripture and how the Scripture was abused. It sells books, but it has nothing to do with Christ's second coming to the earth. The parallel here is just as the lost people in Noah's day were taken away in judgment and Noah and his family were left on the earth to enter into a brand new world, even so at the second coming, all unbelievers will be removed by the angels of God and believers will enter into the kingdom in a brand new regenerated world. And of course, that's clear from the parallel passage in Luke. It says two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. And then in answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. We live in a part of the United States where you see vultures. Some people have never seen vultures. And they come to South Carolina and they say, look at that big, magnificent bird in the sky. And it is big and it is magnificent. But they're God's garbage cans. They eat dead things. They, they, they eat dead things. And Jesus' point is just as when a body is dead and the vultures come and eat on it, even so there will be judgment when Christ comes back because unbelievers will be consigned outside of the kingdom. Look at the rapture. You don't want to be left behind because if you've heard the gospel and clarity and power and you've been left behind, you will not believe during the tribulation. At the second coming, you want to be left behind because it's only unbelievers who are removed from the earth. Two distinct events. At the second coming, or at the rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial. Whereas at the second coming, he comes at the end of the hour of trial, the end of the tribulation. Remember the promise Jesus made in Revelation 3.10? Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's never, ever, ever been an hour of trial that's come upon the whole planet. It's coming. And he says, I will keep you from, ek, out of. It's not, I will keep you through the hour of testing. It's not, I will keep you in spite of the hour of testing. I will keep you, not, I will keep you in the midst of the hour of testing. I will keep you out of the hour of testing. Why? Because the rapture will take place. You say, well, that's great for that church. 
He'll go on to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what he says to the churches. So he's not saying it just for that church. He's saying it for churches like this, for the people of Community Bible Church. We're by contrast in Matthew chapter 25 at the end of the tribulation. We just read it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now listen to this verse. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So again, there's a separation. By the way, there's a group of people, we'll study it later on, they're called post-tribulationists. They believe we'll be here for the great tribulation. That just contradicts the verse we read from Revelation 3, we'll be saved out of the hour of testing. But if we go up in a rapture, at the end of the tribulation, he's already separated them. And there's no one to separate out as we studied in the judgment of the sheep and the goats. In addition, there's a distinction between the rapture and the second coming, and that there are no signs for the rapture. There are many signs for the second coming. As you read the New Testament, it's clear they sense that Jesus can come at any moment. Paul said, we shall not all sleep. He speaks of, and he uses the pronoun we. He said, we will meet the Lord in the air. Paul expected the rapture could happen in his life. Was he right to expect that? Yes, because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that he's near, he could come at any moment. You see, those who are amillennial, and we'll talk about what that means, or post-tribulational, either group, they don't believe that Jesus can come at any moment. They believe there's all kinds of things that still have to happen before Jesus can come back. In a difference, there's a distinction in the timing of the resurrections. The resurrection of the rapture takes place when Christ comes and we meet him in the air, whereas the resurrection of the second coming takes place after he descends to the earth. Remember, we read this a few weeks ago from Daniel chapter 12. Let me read it again. Now, at that time, Michael, Michael the archangel, most of you know who he is, He's one of Israel's personal angels. The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. This sounds like what Jesus said. And there will be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So after the tribulation period, the Old Testament saints are raised. The righteous are raised. And we'll see that Daniel, like Jesus in John 5, speaks not simply of the time of resurrection, but the kind of resurrection. And John is going to elucidate that for us by describing the first resurrection versus the second resurrection. The first is the resurrection of the righteous, the second of the unrighteous. I think, and I hope this will become clear before we're done. In In addition, there's a difference between the rapture and that believers who are alive will receive glorified bodies. We'll be like him when we see him like he is. Whereas believers at the second coming, they will retain their natural bodies. Now, we're going to study how the curse is lifted off of creation. So they're going to live for extended period of times like they did during Noah's day. You're considered accursed if you die at 100. A young man is 100 years old. You'll live for a thousand years. Tribulation saints will. They'll have children and grandchildren. We'll be in resurrected bodies. Jesus said those in resurrected bodies are like angels. And that we neither marry nor are given in angels. We don't become angels. We're like angels. It's a simile. We don't procreate. 
Whereas those who enter the great, uh, the, the, the kingdom at the end of the tribulation, they will be able to have children and their children will have to make decisions for Christ. All right, now with that said, that's a backdrop. If that's all new to you, go back and listen to the first 24 sermons. With that said, let's read our text. All right, Revelation chapter 20. I want to read the first five verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid or took hold, you could render it, of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This, those who came to life, this is the first resurrection. Now, we're going to look at the millennial reign of Christ from a time perspective. We're going to look at the first two points in time this morning. There on your note-taking outline, the millennial kingdom commences with Satan's doom. This coming kingdom age starts with the devil's doom. And I want you to notice uh, two truths that are highlighted concerning Satan's doom. First, Satan's doom will come by God's intervention. All right, look what John reveals for us here in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. Now, please notice verse 20 begins with the familiar phrase, then I saw or in the older edition of the New American Standard, 1978, and I saw. The word chi, and, or then, is a time word. And it's interesting because uh, he is giving a sequence of events starting in chapter 19. And when you come to chapter 20, every single verse begins with the word chi, that you can translate and or then, with the exception of verse 5, because verse 5 and verse 4 are linked together as a singular thought. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions were added a thousand years after the Bible was completed. So it's, again, it's important to consider here the language that is used. You know, I have a few Bibles that have no chapter and verse divisions. And occasionally I'll take one off the shelf and I'll read it because I don't want to be distracted by the verse divisions or the chapter divisions. And that can be helpful sometimes. Now notice, um, uh, by the way, you might ask, well, why did they add them and who added them? They were added almost a thousand years after the Bible was completed. There was a Jewish rabbi who added them for the Old Testament, and a short time later, some Christians who added them for the New Testament. And they're important because otherwise, some of you still would be looking for Revelation chapter 20. You know, like, they had all these scrolls, and they wrote on the outside of the scroll the name of the scroll. Is this Habakkuk or is this Isaiah? Well, we wrote Isaiah on there. And where on this scroll? You know, when Jesus opens up the scroll in Nazareth, I mean, he knows that scroll so well, he can just move right to the spot where he wants to read from Isaiah 61. We have the chapter and verse divisions. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 025. 
One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question both biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.